Well, hey, we're, we're concluding our series, our fall series in Colossians today. And uh, we've, we've watched straight through the letter um, uh, from the Apostle Paul, and we've seen the big themes. And very simply put, the big themes are these. Uh, there was a warning. The Apostle Paul gave the Colossians a warning. There was a reminder, and there was some coaching. So the, the Apostle Paul warned the Colossians of a danger faced by all Christians from all times across all cultures. Uh, here's how he put it. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It's the warning because that's, that happens all the time, right? There's stuff, ideas competing for our allegiance all the time. It's Jesus alone, not Jesus plus some other stuff. Jesus is not one option on the great spiritual buffet of world religion where we just kind of walk by with our plate and take a little of this and a little of that as we please. That's not the image. It's Christ alone. After, after warning them, Paul gives them a reminder of the great truth of the gospel. It, it, that's what Jesus did. Because of what he did, we have new life in him. Look how the apostle put it. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Well, that's good news, right? The, the charge of legal indebtedness against us is, is done away with, and we are, we are pure and holy in God's sight because of what Christ did, not because of anything we do. So there's the warning, there's the reminder, and then Paul gave some coaching on how to pursue the new life that we've received in Christ. And he, he talked about setting our minds on things above, setting our hearts on things above. And, and what he's really talking about is setting our hearts and minds on the age to come. Remember, we've been talking about the overlap of the ages. That, uh, I think we have an image for that, if we could put that. Oh, wait, that's way later. <laughs> so I'll show you that picture later. Um, but the, the overlap of the ages, right? And... Uh, he said, as, as a follower of Jesus, don't live in the old ways of the current age and don't simply set your hope on kind of heaven when you die. It, the, the age is overlapping. The age to come is overlapping the current age. Um, one, one thing that I learned that I didn't know in preparing for this series, whenever in our New Testaments we read the phrase eternal life, if you go back and look at the actual the Greek, the original language, what is actually said is the life of the age to come. And I want you to think about that and sit with that and let that percolate in your heart because I think often we read our Bibles and read eternal life and think heaven when we die. That is not the only thing the New Testament is talking about. It's talking about the life of the age to come and when, we've, when we accept Christ, trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, that life begins right now. And then the, the Christians work by setting our minds on things above and our hearts on things above. Those, that is, set your hearts and minds on the life of the age to come. And we just prayed the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying the life of the age to come into the overlap of the ages. Right? This, this, is, this is what we do when we do devotions, when we read scripture. We're, we're setting our hearts and minds on the life of the age to come, which has begun. 
and we'll, we'll be those people eternally. That was a big diversion. None of that was in here. Um, so Paul talked about how to seek that new life. Then he talked about how to apply that new life in our closest daily relationships. Today, he talks about how followers of Jesus apply that new life in the world. Like what, does this, does this bring with it some responsibility to the world as a whole? And the answer to that is yes. So let's listen now to the scripture. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 18. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim as clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that may he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. And my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend, our dear friend Luke the doctor and Dumas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Well, you can tell it's the last part of the letter. You know, there's some clear closing remarks. He's talking with friends and such. Uh, for the message today, we'll, we'll focus primarily on the first five verses. So that's uh, verse two through verse six. One commentator called those five verses, quote, a loose sequence of additional admonitions. I read that and went, what? No, they're not. This is not a loose sequence of additional admonitions. This is a carefully crafted and concise summary of what followers of Jesus are to do and be in the world. It's not just a random hodgepodge of stuff. This is how our new life in Jesus plays out in action for a lost and broken world so loved by God. So what, what impact does our new life in Jesus 
have on us with regard to our place in this larger world? Um, three things, prayer, conduct, and speech. And the first is prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. D- devote yourselves. The original language uh, has the implication of continuing to do something with steadfast devotion. So it's not like you're starting something new. It's continuing to do something you've already be doing, been doing and, and re-upping to stay at it with kind of a steadiness. Uh, the, the English Standard Version chooses to put it this way. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I like that. That, that gets the real sense of it. The instruction is to keep on praying, right? Don't stop. Again, I know me, so I know a little something about you because we're both human. And I think we know that sometimes the very first thing to go when we get comfortable and settle into the rhythm of daily life is any semblance of a prayer life. At least I know that's hard for me. I imagine it is for you too. Uh, Imagine it was for the Colossians as well. This is part of the human condition. So Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So what does our new life in Jesus mean for our life in the world? Point number one, pray and keep on praying. And as you pray, be watchful, he says. Paul's simply repeating the clear teaching of Jesus, this from the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And here's the picture. Ah, it was in here somewhere. <laughs> the overlap of the ages. So what Jesus said is, you know, the, the second vertical line is the return of Christ. And he said, look, you don't know when that's going to come. Could be uh, in 30 seconds. It might be in 3,000 years. But we have no idea. Uh, and and as, a, as another note, if you ever hear anybody and I mean anybody in this world claiming that they know that time, walk away. Because Jesus said, he didn't even know. So only the Father knows that. So if somebody's going down that road of predicting those dates, my suggestion to you is go elsewhere for your teaching because that teaching is poor. We're called to be watchful of that, that day, not hyper-focused on it, watchful for it. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul put it this way, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Pray, keep on praying, be watchful. Uh, I loved this from my reading this week from N.T. Wright. As children of the day, Christians are to keep awake, looking out on the sleeping world, which as the object of God's love is also to be the object of his people's regular, steady, and thorough prayer. This is much larger than asking God for the stuff we need. 
this is much more comprehensive than turning to God when we're in a pinch or when we have a problem, asking to help us when we feel a need. This is adjoining God in what's really going on in the world, which is there's a huge redemption plan unfolding for which Jesus died and in which we are invited to participate. This is kingdom-focused prayer. Again, like the Lord's Prayer we just prayed, praying the, the, the life of the age to come into the present now. This is praying for people we know who don't yet know Jesus and all he's done for us. This, this kind of prayer intercedes for the world and, and keeps on interceding for the world. So the instruction is pray, keep on praying, be watchful, and be thankful. And be thankful. John Calvin believed that prayer is the primary way we can show our thankfulness to God. Just to keep praying, it's a way to say thanks. When we pray, uh, we grow in our sense of thankfulness. And we pray because we're thankful. Right? There's kind of a little loop there. They go hand in hand. And, and you probably caught this. Paul throws in a special request. He's like, hey, when we're praying for the world that God loves, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He, he's saying to the Colossians, hey, as you're praying for the world, would you please pray for those of us who are called to preach in a more kind of vocational kind of way? Ask that God will open a door for the word that's what the original language means. Open a door for the word into the hearts and minds of people. So one of the primary ways that Christians can be praying in this world is that God would open a door for the word into the hearts and minds of people who don't yet know what, what following Jesus means. And when Paul asks for prayer that he might proclaim it clearly, he's not talking about the ability to explain things with clarity. He's talking about the courage to take his place in the great revelation project of God because God is revealing himself chiefly through Jesus. So Paul's saying, hey, pray that we would have courage to be part of this big project in, in, the, in the public space as we preach because the revelation of God in Christ has already been given in history and written in scripture, but it must also be spoken by God's servants if people's minds are to be opened to the truth. It is by human speech that divine truth is made clear, that is, made known. How can they believe unless someone preaches to them, right? So the Colossians had learned of the gospel through the preaching of Epaphras, and Paul is asking for prayer covering in his calling. It's good to pray for those who preach. We need it. Not just me. I cover your prayers for this, what's going on right now. Because it has to be God's thing. Otherwise, it just becomes a weird manipulation project, right? So prayer, then conduct. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Uh, be wise, or literally, literally Walk in the way of wisdom. As, as you're moving in this world, interacting with others, move and interact with the wisdom that, that God gives. This is point number two. Be wise 
in the way you act toward outsiders. That, that page just, or that word just kind of jumps off the page, doesn't it? Outsiders, it makes it sound a bit like a club, doesn't it? Like there's insiders and outsiders, and if you're an outsider, well, too bad for you. That, that's not the, the sense of this word. Outsiders are simply people who haven't yet heard what Jesus has done and surrendered to him. And that surrendering part is huge. You can hear, but not say, yeah, that is exactly what I need. That is really what I need. And then, you know, release the trust, which is faith, right? Transfer of trust from whatever we've been doing for ourselves to what Christ has done for us. See, in Jesus, there's a whole world of understanding that changes one's understanding of the whole world. And when a person's understanding of the world is not yet defined by and centered on Jesus, they're outsiders to the way of Jesus. Not, there's no value judgment there. It's just a statement of truth. Perhaps the abiding impression left by this most practical section is that there is never a time, according to Paul, when our responsibilities to the outsider can be out of mind. I, I, I in my mind, kind of put it this way. You, you could read over this and think, oh, that, that's kind of nice. But what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying, hey, Christians, uh, as a follower of Jesus, your primary filter, the, the number one thing your engagements with others should flow through as you're speaking with them or around them is this. Am I chatting with someone who knows and has surrendered to Jesus or not? Not, not just once in a while. Every human interaction, that's filter number one, right? And then we calibrate our posture and presence to serve Jesus the best we can with the person in front of us at that moment. We're the ones who change. We don't ask them to change. Remember, this is the whole, the whole instinct of everything that Jesus was talking about. He came to us and he sends us to others. He doesn't say, hey, wait till they come to you. Go, engage. And as you do, be wise in the way that you're doing that. I mean, this, this is how we make the most of every opportunity, make, make the most of the time, not by being pushy, but by, by being wise. People new to faith in Jesus have an urgency but sometimes lack discretion. People seasoned in faith might have discretion but through, through the years they might have, uh, their, their boldness might have faded, right? The, the, the wisdom part of this, walking in the ways of, of wisdom involves balancing discretion and boldness at the discretion of the spirit, direction of the spirit. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Prayer, conduct, and then speech. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Point three, let your speaking be full of grace and seasoned with witness to Jesus. That's, that's what the salt part's about, right? So let me ask you this. What does it look like for a conversation to be full of grace? Just think in your minds, when have you experienced a conversation that you, you felt was overflowing with grace toward you? What, 
What marked that conversation? What were its characteristics? I just started brainstorming on this and thought, well, we have some models of this. I mean, Paul addressing the Areopagus in Athens, second half of Acts 17, if you're interested, he, he is addressing people who are outsiders to the way of Jesus. And I know I've done this before, but I find it fascinating. If you go back and reread that whole section and observe the way Paul used pronouns, use them very carefully. Because, you know, when you, when you say you in your speaking, you're, you're drawing a line and you're saying, I'm on this side and you are on this other side. There, there's a separation that's inherent in that kind of language. When you say we, you erase the line and like, hey, we are all on this together, right? You, you've experienced that. You feel that. You feel that. Uh, I think I've fessed up before. I think about those pronouns a lot in doing what I'm doing right now because the way we experience speech matters. Uh, Our emotional reaction to it matters. So you want to use speech intentionally to invite people in, all of us together, we, 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 and then give a little bit of challenge. Have you considered this? That's gracious speaking. Right, careful like that. The Bible has some stuff to say about our words, about our speaking. Uh, gracious speech is fitting and proper, the Bible says. It promotes instruction, is noble and sweet to the soul. The Bible in Proverbs 26 says there's a type of speaking that seems gracious on the outside but is actually concealing malice, wickedness, and deception. Maybe you've experienced that too. Uh, Another factor that impacts graciousness, I'm sure, um, and and our speaking is our emotional health. There's a a pastor out in uh, Queens, uh, New York, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. The tagline is this, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to be a gracious and effective witness to Jesus if you are one, easily offended, two, often defensive, three, focused on the faults of others, and four, regularly simmering with anger. Your speaking will reveal that. Our words reveal what's really going on inside of us. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect, right? This is why we have to go back, ask forgiveness. Jesus has given us a model for that too. But I believe this is true. Gladly, the Lord wants to meet us in those places where we're still growing emotionally. And we all are. And the Lord wants to bring healing in those places. Maybe uh, you yourself have pursued growth and healing at the emotional level. Maybe you have friends who've gone deep with this. Maybe walking with a counselor or a therapist over a season or or really working on this. You know what I'm talking about. It shows, right? You can tell. You can tell who's done the hard work of becoming a healthier person emotionally. And we can grow in our emotional health, and as we do, I believe our speaking will become more gracious. That's a piece of it. Give me more there. Let's, uh, let's move on to the salt thing. You know, let, your, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. I love this, and I have, a, I have a visual for us. It's the perfect illustration for our speaking, isn't it? 
because it, so, it visually encapsulates two errors we need to avoid, right? Got a nice plate of tasty food here, use your imagination. And the, uh, the, the instruction is to season your conversation with salt, right? So one error is this. You're talking, talking, and you've got the salt shaker because you know Christ, right? And maybe, maybe there's a chance, but... Oh, oh, oh. That's one error, right? You never, you never use any salt at all. The other error, hey! Right? So we, we season our conversation with salt. That, that's enough. Nobody wants more than that at one time. The food tastes nasty. Don't do that. But you got to use it. Right? Walk in the way of wisdom in the way you act toward outsiders. Let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Did you catch that part? I, I don't think the assumption is that we just wait for people to ask us spiritual questions, though that certainly is a part of it. Maybe it's a direct question somebody asks. And when your conversation is full of grace and seasoned with salt, your answer to them will be positive, right? I want to give you one very practical way to season your conversations with salt as you're talking with people. If there's one thing we all share in common, it's that we will encounter very challenging times in life, right? Jesus made that clear, the teaching about the storm and the, and the rain. He didn't say, if the storm comes and the rain falls down, talk about where, where to build your house, right? If you're less familiar with the Bible, I'll explain it another time. But Jesus said, when the storm comes. Nobody's going to go through life without a huge storm. Multiple huge storms. Super hard times in life. People we love will die to this life. Probably some of them way too early. And we think, why? What? Uh, We face all sorts of other challenges. We make mistakes. We, all this. Uh, As you're interacting with other people and coming into contact with others who are hurting or in a really difficult season... Rather than, make, rather, rather than making your seasoning your conversation with salt, a statement, choose a question. Here's the question. Man, you're going, you're going through a really tough time. In tough times, where do you look for hope? Say no more. It's, it communicates volumes. It's gracious. You're honestly interested in them. And you can see where it goes. Maybe they reciprocate and say, well, where, where do you look for hope? Well, then you have an opportunity to say, I, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know what I mean? But the question is this. Write it down, please. In tough times, where do you look for hope? So put that in your conversational toolbox and think about that. Look for, look for opportunities to use that.
When our speaking is marked by grace and truth, we represent and share Jesus with those around us. So what does our new life in Jesus mean for us in this world in which we live and for all the people we interact with on a daily basis? I think, I think it means this. Pray and keep on praying. Be wise in your conduct toward outsiders. Speak graciously. Season your speaking with witness to Jesus. And that's the end of the letter. Right? I hope you've enjoyed this series. I know I have enjoyed preparing these messages. The power is in the word of God. And there's a whole lot in this letter that is very helpful for our daily living. It's not a way back then letter that doesn't apply to us. I hope we've seen that. A lot that's applicable to our daily living as we seek to follow Jesus, because that's what we're trying to do here, not just think good thoughts about Jesus. Trying to actually follow. What does that mean for our lives tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday? How do we follow Christ? in our lives. The big idea of this letter is the one we've been reading at the end of every message. So why don't we close the series then by reading these two verses again. Would you join me in this? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the presence of your Spirit. Thank you that we can know that the Bible is your word by the inner witness of your Spirit and the way that you confirm and show, show us stuff. We bless you that you've given us that witness to the truth of the word. And would you help us, God? We're, we're all broken people. We're all so imperfect, and we know that. Would you, by your spirit, be present in our inner dialogue? And when the accusation wheel revs up there, uh, please, by your spirit, be our comforter, our hope, the one who reminds us of everything that Jesus said, uh, the one who helps us take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus not because we're trying to be strong and make all our thinking right, but because we're simply seeking to trust you in what's going on in our minds. Help us discern the difference between your voice, Lord, and the the voices of the world, the flesh, and the devil in that inner dialogue that we might not only be aware of how you're getting our attention, but be able to hear what you're saying by your spirit to us and have the courage to do something about it, to follow you how you're leading us. Uh, We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us in all this, we ask in your name. Amen.